Hello and welcome to this, the seventh episode of the Views from the Bath podcast. Excitingly, uh, lockdown and quarantine has, has got us being pretty consistent on, on weekly uploads, which is exciting. We hope you're enjoying. So we enjoy, hope you enjoy this episode with your, your three favorite PhD students in Edmund, Ed and David. So how have we been doing this week, Ed? So this week I've had my only exam for this January. It was statistics. It was quite nice in that we had 24 hours to do it and no remote invigilation. So it wasn't as stressful as I know some other people have been having for their remote exams. And then the rest of the week I've been working on an sort of ethics essay looking at how artificial intelligence could possibly be a threat to democracy in sort of the next hundred years or so. Uh, I've had to do a lot of research on the uh, coming of the AI singularity when computers are on a par with human intelligence. And so that's been my week, writing lots of words, proofreading, whittling it down to to sound concise and somewhat intelligent. So uh, that's that's what my week's been. David, what have you been up to? So I've had quite a busy week as well. It was certainly quite eventful in that I finished my quarantine on Tuesday. I had no symptoms, so I was able to have a bit more freedom and been stuck in my flat for the last the previous 10 days. Uh, and that meant that I was able to go to CERN and pick up where I left off before Christmas in terms of some of my research, as I'm sure... Uh, Ed Jones will agree with. I spent most of my time repeating stuff that I'd done before Christmas in order to understand where I was. I didn't really do too much new in that sense. Alongside that, the day that I went in, which was Wednesday, uh, we had a blizzard here in Geneva and about uh, three inches of snow fell whilst I was at CERN in sort of two hours that I was there. So I had a bit of an eventful trip back in that the trams had stopped running, so I had to walk about 3 or 4k back to my house in this sort of heavy snow, which was both a good thing and a bad thing. And here it was fairly cold, but it was it was a really beautiful walk through the, the fields between CERN and the village that I live in, and seeing all the snow on the trees and the fields was uh, really nice. And, yeah, it was kind of, kind of magical. So since then, I've mainly been working from my flat uh, I went into CERN once more and had to get the cyclocross bike out to get me make my way through the snow on the on the next day. But yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite eventful. But yeah, getting back into the swing of things and hopefully next week I have a bit more of a regular schedule of spending time at CERN and doing research. How about you, Ed? Yeah, similarly had a I'd call it a relatively productive week i think we all got to see uh see the nice snowy pictures from you from from cern those of you who follow you on social media it was uh exciting by, uh, compared to the kind of the gray and wet that was london this week i've been feeling like uh this week i've been doing the same things i was doing for a long period in coming into christmas and since running some simulations and validating simulations i've, I've made a step forward and have started looking at longitudinal wave excitation which is which is exciting and potentially more applicable to to some of the things i want to do and started to validate that finding that there are less sort of 
less supporting bits of literature, so I'm going to do a bit more of more of the stuff myself, which has been good. A little bit frustrating, make lots of mistakes, trying new stuff. We will make, always make lots of new mistakes. So that's interesting. I went to the lab this week, which was nice. Nice to get in there, but a bit frustrating. I've had a test running for a little over a year and I've discovered some some pretty significant problems with it. So I was taking it apart in frustration and uh it was, in the end, it isn't too bad in that there are some significant learnings I can take from from what we've done, but a little bit frustrating to know that you're not going to get all the results you want from something that's been sitting on a rig for a year. But we get on to the next one. But one of the things that's often that I've been told by a lot of the people who I research is that you should never, and nobody ever really uses the the first tests that they run. And that for a lot of people, the stuff that goes in their thesis in terms of results is only the last 12 to 14 months worth of actual testing because before that they're learning to get the testing right and learning what what they need to test properly not actually doing the the testing that matters i certainly hope that's true given my current lack of results and having about 12 months left it's comforting to know that i can still have plenty to do to put in my thesis and hopefully that'll be the case yeah yeah. And is that the sort of testing and preamble that you can put in your methodology and things like that for your for your final submission? Definitely there will be some some method work on on that on this sort of testing. I think there are a few people I work with who are trying to change the standards and the way that we do the testing that that I'm doing. And so there might be once they put their thesis out, there might be some more I can write based on that and things like that. And and I'm always, and my research is looking to change that and looking to change the way we do this testing. So, of course, it's useful. And we've had some useful discoveries from the work, just not much in the way of useful results, but that's okay. Test procedure is important in that. Yeah. It is the way of the PhD. It is. You're always exciting this week, Ed. So, you, you say you're talking about 100 years of uh, so the impact that like AI might have on democracy in hundred in the hundred year scale, you think it's that far off? So a lot of the literature at the moment is looking at the time we have until the AI singularity, which is it varies in its definition, but essentially it's the the time where computers will be able to do any human task quicker and better than we can. And so any sort of point past that, there potentially will be a phase in which no more human ingenuity will, will cause advances to our society and will be entirely reliant on computing. But some that there was a sort of survey and summative study done in 2016, and people had timescales from 10, 20 years. And these were all experts at a conference that were asked do you think it will ever occur how long do you think it will be until it occurs and so it ranges from like 10 20 years all the way to two or three hundred years for the sort of level of human tasks that ai will be able to manage the the general consensus is by the turn of the next century we'll have reached it which is why it's extremely important to start having these ideas in place in how to work AI into our democracies, because it is coming. And if we don't have an idea of how to grapple and integrate with it, we're, get, we're going to be in a 
very dangerous situation in which we could become essentially second second class citizens and pets to these AI overlords that yes they may be able to make objectively good decisions for us all to live in our society but we may lose agency over how we're how we're governed and whether that's something we want to give up or not is a, a point that needs to be seriously considered so yeah that, I think it's coming sooner I'm guessing also that, that, that there's obviously going to be a tipping point where computers will be able to do all jobs better than a human however I'm guessing that coming up to that point is going to be a fairly gradual change it'll be sort of it, it won't just be one day we'll wake up and computers can do everything better it it'll be a bit harder to to notice when that happens because in the decades leading up to it more and more parts of what a human is capable of will be achieved with a computer yeah and it and it will be a much more of a gradual change it it's not going to be that thing that one day someone goes right i've cracked it and nobody knew it was coming but because the amount of computing power required to do it in the first instance will not be small it'll be very large supercomputers that are able to mimic the, this type of human behavior so we'll know it's coming and i i think the point of focusing on when it will come sets the pace of how big the threats are that that are coming to democracy in the next 20 30 40 years and so we can if we can accurately project when it's going to come we can we can start planning accordingly okay and so so i guess when you say about ai being a threat to democracy you're talking about um, ai superseding humans rather than when I guess at the moment, when you look at things like Cambridge Analytica, they used a lot of machine learning to affect democracy, but that was much more uh, human engineering, right? Yeah, so so there's a number of different modes that AI can threaten democracy. They can influence the electorate to manipulate current elections, so sort of get social engineering gearing people towards making decisions for a certain candidate. So, so that's the thing, sort of thing we'll have to contend with in the very near future, and we're already already having to counteract. But as we move further into the future, where when we determine that these artificial intelligence systems can make better decisions than humans, what? Why are we voting for individuals that we think have our best interests at heart when we can look to technology and say this actually is coded to have the average best interest to make its decisions from? That that sort of that might completely remove the need for democracy rather than just threaten the way in which we currently go through our de- democratic system. So so these different modes and sort of influencing people in our current elections all the way to it could it could be a positive thing where everyone has the ability to have their views put forward into this sort of overarching governance AI which tries to maximize the quality of life for everyone that that it has bearing on. So so there's lots of different modes for for this to threaten democracy as we know it today. 
Yeah, I think the topic could take a whole podcast in in itself. Yeah, definitely. There's a discussion to be had on on how the effect of these things on democracy and also partly because it's it is in the end always code that's written by somebody with a position and yeah for for a good majority this time it's going to be affected by the by the biases of the people who write it yeah but we yeah we could spend all day talking about this there's a few things we do want to talk chat about today we want to do a kind of mini version of the how to watch a sport, but this time with sailing in the America's Cup. But before, we were going to have a quick chat about how the stuff we've been doing in lockdown and how, how that's changed from, from when we had a little bit more freedom. So I think the first thing that we all have kind of taken on has been swifting. And so for those unaware, turbo training for bikes, which is the equivalent of putting your normal bike onto something that allows you to ride it indoors. Uh, and the extension of that has been controllable uh, and a sort of gamification by programs like Swift and Road Grand Tours, which control your the resistance based on the gradient of the world around you or the draft of the people around you. It's allowed for lots of community within sort of uh, within the cycling world and triathlon world including like big races or big group rides together and what they're currently running the tour de zwift which is a sort of lots of opportunities for people to ride together they've just had their record numbers on zwift which is now forty six thousand, and they're breaking that record basically weekly but yeah we've all kind of taken it on i was a bit of a skeptic for quite a long time but eventually have kind of got into it uh, what's what's you guys feeling on it? This is Zwift is something that I've used, I think, for about a year and a half now. Really, since I first got a turbo trainer as a way to motivate myself, whilst I was training indoors and maybe on those rainy days back in London when I didn't really feel like cycling outside or going to Richmond Park, it was a way to sort of keep my fitness up and ride my bike more than I would have without it. So. I was perhaps an earlier adopter than definitely you were, Ed. But I, I really think that, yeah, it, it's both. It offers both a structured way to train and improve your fitness, but then you also have the community side alongside it, meaning that you feel like you're not alone, even though you might just be sat on your bike um, in a flat on your own training, but in a, in a sense, you're doing it with a, alongside other people, so you get that that extra motivation that you wouldn't have without it. Yeah, Ed, how have you found it? Yeah, so I, I think I started Zwifting around about October of last year, and it's really just a godsend when you look outside. It's chucking it down with rain, and you know you can still some do some sort of meaningful exercise that in a coordinated way there are loads of different workouts on there that you can just easily pick up and i've thoroughly enjoyed sort of tuesday evenings which me and a couple of others including you ed uh, get together and swift together so it's it's a nice way to be able to do a group ride which we're which we can't currently do and it's a lot more structured than i'd typically do out cycling by myself so 
I really have enjoyed Zwift uh, and it makes you sort of forget that you're just cycling inside by yourself, sweating. It, <laughs> it really is one of the best sort of gamifications of sport that I've seen in, in quite a while. It's impressive and I and even turbo training has always been the place for me to do more structured training because I know how frustrating it's been to how hard it is to get to especially living in london to get proper efforts done because you're either stuck with traffic on a lot of the time the road quality isn't up to it you're trying to push and then there's lots of downhills which make it harder to do that it's often very hard to get those good structured efforts in whereas on zwift or on the turbo trainer that was where you'd be able to do it because you know you've got a controlled environment that let you do it and then you could use that fitness when you were outside doing the things you wanted to do I think it's it's been a godsend during during lockdown and a yeah it's been great and it will be interesting to see how it changes and if any innovations they make going forward. An additional thing for me as well was that when I got a turbo trainer, it was a smart trainer which was able to read out the power I was delivering whilst I was cycling, and that's something that I didn't have access to if I was riding outside because I don't have a power meter on my bike, which meant that when I started. Using the table trainer, I was able to actually objectively see what my FTP was and get an idea of how many watts I was putting out for a perceived effort, which is not something that I was able to do. And the way I was able to sort of record my fitness levels when I was outside was sort of maybe how long it took me to do a lap of Richmond Park. And that was the sort of benchmark that I, I used, whereas when I'm indoors on the table trainer, I'm a lot more... I have so much more data available to me, which means that it's much easier to understand which parts of your fitness you need to improve on, whether it's long endurance efforts or short sprints. And you can really sort of change how you train to reflect that. Tune that power curve. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I don't know about anybody else, but I think I've also found that the lockdown and the effect it's had has meant that like i find myself training later in the day than i might normally have done before i don't know whether that's the same with anybody else i find yeah that just i don't know what it is about the being locked inside that makes it it's possibly just partly being winter as well that makes it harder to get up to do something in the morning where and so i find myself going into the routine of doing my going straight to work in the morning and then doing more of my training in the evening yeah, I, I've definitely found it harder to, to get out for a bike ride or, or do some sort of exercise in the mornings at the moment. And I think that also brings us on to, to the fact that if we do get out cycling at the moment, that it has to be a solo ride. And it's sort of, you lose any of the sort of organizing to go with someone, it gets you out the door because you know you're letting someone else down if you don't go. And then even once you're on the ride, if you're in a larger group or something, if you're feeling a bit tired, you, do, you can always hang on the back, and if if you're feeling good, you can you can push it, push everyone on, and do, do a longer stint on the front. We're all missing the cafe stop, and I think we're all missing riding with people, and the the joy that brings. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that, that's something that really I found was a great benefit to, to cycling when I first started a couple of years ago. Was within the triathlon club at imperial was just the whole notion of a group ride and the ability to sort of spend time with people out on the bike and then have a great conversation whilst you're out there and then also in the cafe stops and you just meet 
new people and it, yeah it's, it's a great way to to socialize and then you get the additional benefit that you're you're doing exercise at the same time exactly right shall we move on to the to the meat of the episode to probably and your your expert subject out of all of us in sailing in the america's cup yeah so this week we're going to have a quick look at the america's cup um and for those who don't know what it is it's essentially a sailing race between two boats but it's a little more complicated than that it began in around 1821 with a race around the isle of wight between the royal yacht squadron which um the uk-based yacht club and they raced against the new york yacht club and that was the first year that america won and has set off sort of a streak of almost 200 years of the of the brits losing yeah i mean it's similar in cycling in the way that we've managed to find being the first past the finishing post and to make it really really complicated yeah so and then um it's gone through a load of different iterations through the years uh, from the 1990s to almost 2007 they raced a single class of boat between whoever had won the previous challenge and a whole host of other other challenges um they all raced the same class of boat and then in 2010 it was something called a deed of gift match which essentially there's just one date where you have to turn up and there is a single race or a number of races and you turn up with any boat you want pretty much that's within the vague rules that have been agreed on between the, the two boats the, the two teams that this led to sort of a huge trimaran being brought over from america there had been essentially sandbagging through all of their testing and design phase and then when it came to the actual race they were sort of blew the other team out of the water and were, were sort of 30 40 percent quicker so so as soon as soon as they <laughs> actually started trimming the sails properly they just shot past the other team and then through the 2010s they moved on to a more sort of standard one design foiling catamaran which is a boat with two holes they started off at 72 foot and then they sort of reduced down to 50 foot uh, for, the, for the next edition and those have actually those 50 foot editions have actually spun off into another sailing series called the gp50 series so there's sort of two high performance yacht racing classes going at the moment with the gp50 and the ac75 which are this year's ones I think when I came across the the America's Cup was in uh, San Francisco the, with those huge cat boats and the amazing comeback story from 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 that edition of the race. Yeah, that that, that was I think that was when they were using the AC seventy twos, which are they were absolutely huge, sort of seventy two foot cats up completely out of the water. That, that yeah, it, it was fantastic to watch. Those were scarily fast but, and pretty dangerous, if memory serves. There was a sailor lost during the training races. Yeah, there have been a, a few lives lost as the sort of speeds increase. And we'll touch on that later with sort of the safety equipment that they're now having to use on board the boats. But so essentially the format that the America's Cup follows is whoever's won the previous cup 
they're the known as the defender and then there is another yacht club that is the challenger of record this year it's a team called luna rossa that's based out of italy and they essentially say we're going to challenge for the cup and they agree a whole set of rules with the defender and then other challengers can come in alongside um, the challenger of record and they all play out play around in a challenger series to decide who's actually going to race the defender for the america's cup those precursor series is currently happening over in new zealand with something called the prada cup i, I have perhaps a very simple question um why is it called the america's cup um, it's called the america's cup because they were the first one to challenge for it so the, it was the New York Yacht Club that raced against the um, Royal Yacht Squadron in that first race, and it's and it was then known as the America's Cup because the Americans had it. Um, the, the actual trophy is called the Old Mug. So it's, in a way, it's kind of like in golf they have the Ryder Cup, which was originally the UK versus America, and then got expanded to America versus the whole of Europe because they weren't enough. Because we weren't good enough. <laughs> Yeah, that is one parallel you could draw this year <laughs> for, for the cup. Um, but yeah, I guess it's a slightly more global event, though. I'm guessing America still dominates in terms of it, it always has yeah. a contestant, I guess. Yeah, so so this this cycle, they were hoping to get between eight and ten teams challenging for it. But in fact, there's only three challengers that have turned up to New Zealand. There was a second American team called Stars and Stripes, but they had a very sketchy start and lots of rumours about whether they'd actually turn up and if they were using one of the team's old boats to, to challenge for the cup, but that they've they've not turned up. They haven't raced anything, so it's they're, they're pretty much dead now and there's, there's nothing going to come of them. So typically, maybe say over the last 10 years, how many teams on average challenge for the cup? So I, I think usually they get between... I'd say four to six challengers turning up. Um, I think the edition before this that we we had entries from sort of Scandinavia with Artemis Racing. Um, we had a Japanese team entering. Yeah, so 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 they usually have more than more than they have down in New Zealand at the moment. And when it was first announced, there were there were plans for a Dutch team uh, and uh, and a number of the other nations were, were planning on challenging, but. As I'll get onto with the uh, with the teams, the, uh, the 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 financial commitment is huge. So I uh, should probably say who's actually racing this latest edition. So obviously we have the defenders who were the New Zealand yacht squadron, who are led by two Olympic sailors, uh, Pete Burling and Blair Tuck. They have won multiple gold medals in the forty nine er class. And Pete Burling has also done the Volvo Around the World Ocean Race, being quite successful in that as well. So they're both very experienced sailors. Um, and then the challenger of record is Luna Rossa Prada Pirelli. It's a bit of a mouthful with all of their sponsors in there. They're helmed this year by a guy called Jimmy Spithill, who's been involved in many, many America's Cups and is is come back for this one he's actually an american but their their team captain is a is a guy from italy you'll rapidly see that the uh the flag on the boat is not always the the, the nationality of the people inside the boat at all 
And then from the UK this year, we have a team sponsored by Ineos. So they're Team Ineos UK. And they're helmed by the one of the most successful Olympians of all time, Ben Ainsley. Or Sir Ben Ainsley, surely. Sir Ben Ainsley, yes. And then finally, we have American Magic, who are helmed by a guy called Dean Parker, who's also a very successful um, sailor and has been involved with multiple America's Cup cycles before this. I think one of the interesting things about the, the Cup this year is that all four of the teams, including the Defender, have billionaires backing them and huge amounts of financial investments for, from wealthy individuals. I think it was interesting to me that and it was when, when my first interest in this in this sport came was was watching the races between Team Oracle USA and Emirates New Zealand back in 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 the early twenty tens. And it was you saw that the the technical challenge and the engineering challenge was was one of the sort of one of the huge drawing points for for it and i think it's shown that the the investment required and the sheer engineering power required to to run america's cup team hasn't reduced in in the years since yeah and the it also sometimes becomes somewhat of a pissing contest between billionaires of who's won the america's cup most recently so oracle sponsored it sponsored the american challenge for many many years and Larry Ellison was uh, was bitter rivals with many of the defenders through <laughs> through those years until they won it, and then the US team no longer sponsored by Oracle. No, they're uh, they're they're sponsored by the DeVosses now, which are even more questionable. Yeah, it is. I think not the only sport that we follow where you some of the sponsors are are somewhat questionable. It's. It seems like a, the America's Cup is often kind of called the F1 of the water and both have similar issues with, with some questionable backing at times. So you mentioned that a lot of the captains were Olympians, I mean, the most famous being, at least in the UK, Sir Ben Ainsley. A lot of the Olympic sailing is done on a lot smaller boats. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so so the, these boats are sort of seventy five foot, and the the biggest biggest boats they sail in in the Olympics are twenty foot at most, usually usually less than fifteen. Yeah, so does that mean that a lot of the say skills required to be successful on large yachts are similar to the skills required to be successful on these smaller boats that are sailed at the Olympics, or is it just that these are very talented individuals that are able to do it all? I think. What is attractive about the America's Cup is that they're essentially just very large sailing dinghies. A lot of the time, if it's a, it's a if it's a large yacht and it has a lot of, it, and if it's ocean going, it's that there's a lot more nuances to it with being able to navigate well and being able to work in a shift pattern and do do that sort of ocean racing, but with the America's Cup, it is just being able to read the wind, look at the shifts it, that come in the wind and sail it like an oversized dinghy, which is why these America's Cup sailors are usually ex-Olympians who, who have got to the top of their field and they then go to the America's Cup where they sail a lot faster and it is the pinnacle of, of their racing. It's pure speed. 
rather than when you compare it to the other form the other famous forms of sailing outside of the olympics where where it's the distance challenge yeah and i think why they also get attracted to it is after spending a lot of time in the olympics and focusing on one design racing where there are very stringent class rules moving over to the over to the america's cup they can use their expertise and knowledge to feed into the designers of these boats to really use their knowledge to to push the pinnacle of sailing performance forwards and have an input into how sailing will develop and that they can sort of put their mark on the on the sailing community that may be a good point to, for you to tell us about the boat for this year. This year, we have fully foiling 75-foot monohulls. So what that means is it has a single monocoque carbon construction for, for the main hull. And then it's got two wings, well, what look like wings, and they're actuating foil arms with T-foils on the end. So they can be both in the down position and they can foil on two foils and the rudder, or they, when they're going upwind or downwind, they can lift one foil to increase their writing moment and get more power out of the sail. These boats do up to about 50 knots, which is 93 kilometers an hour. So if they get a bit of <laughs> big breeze one day, it is possible we could see these boats going over 100 kilometers an hour, which is just crazy. It is a remarkable sight when you see them up on the foils in that the the main hull is is not touching the water at all and at these crazy high speeds it's it's an amazing demonstration of physics just the the boats sort of flying on the foils yeah Uh, and with them going up to sort of 90 kilometers an hour the closing speed between the boats if they're if they're both headed towards each other it is almost sort of 150, 200 kilometers an hour, which is which is approaching F1 speeds into a corner, and, and you need that sort of reaction time to be able to set to helm it properly, which, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Anything else important about the boats within the teams? Through the development cycle, there there have been stringent rules in place in how many test boats they can have and what the design has been uh, been allowed to be. So they've been allowed one test boat, which most of the teams launched in the start of 2019, late 2018. They were sailing those through, am I getting my years right? No, it's 2021 now. Late, yeah. they, they launched them in tw- late 2019. It really has been a long time since the last, last cup. <laughs> and so, so they're allowed a sort of boat one to do all of their testing and getting used to sailing these huge foiling foiling yachts and they were basically allowed free reign on the design except for specific things about the control systems all the sail manipulation has to be done from human energy so they're not allowed um, extra generators to increase the amount of force they have to pull in their sails or anything like that but the foil arm systems for the actuators and the actual arms that go down to the t-foils were supplied to all of the teams from a mixture of a design that was implemented by the New Zealanders and Team Luna Rossa to, to make sure that that was not not biased at all. So so they, they've each got a part made for the teams by them. But th- that has been a point of contention because Team Ineos UK 
had a foil failure in one of the test races before Christmas, which they, they essentially, it wasn't their fault. As you mentioned, the the amount of human power that has to go into the manipulation of the, what I believe are rigid sails that they're using. And you've, we, we've seen some videos of power from, from the arms of some of these sailors of sort of 400 watts of power for 20 minutes for some of these sailors in practicing yeah. and training to be able to be able to do this. And those of you who know cycling know that that is a, an impressive, very impressive near professional power to be putting out with your legs is hugely impressive to be to be seeing from sailors in coming from their arms yeah it's it's ridiculous that these guys have an ftp with their arms that i could be jealous of with with my legs it's it's ridiculous uh uh, one correction there this year they're actually sailing with soft skin sails Uh um so previously they had had hard wing um, wing sails but this year they've got sort of a twin skin design where they pass air through the middle of the two to give it structure. And, and that's one of the main differences between the design this year as to previous years. They have a lot more trimming of the shape of the sail to do rather than just setting the wing to, to the angle that it needs to be at and just going. So, so there's a lot more. The, the reason it was brought in was to bring the cut back to a lot more about the sailing and the skill of the sailors and being able to trim the sails properly rather than just an all out putting as much power you can into the systems and then just pushing the boat as hard as you can that there's they've tried to make it a lot more skillful i was gonna say this the 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 rigid sails did give a huge technological uh, area of work and put put more onto the engineers to be able to give you a, a better surface and a better uh, properties out there and probably taking a huge amount of skill out of the out of the sailing they still requires a lot of skill to sail but this they they were hoping it would bring it back to more what the the intention of <laughs> of the cup is to test the sailing skill of, of all of the people on board but i mean it's ridiculous to, to go and watch uh, uh, and talking about watching it we, we should say how everyone can go and go and watch it at the moment so it's currently live on YouTube late at night at sort of 2 or 3 a.m. our time because it's down in New Zealand. And then they release highlights every day. Um, Ed, you said you watched the highlights this morning? Yep. How, how did you find the racing for someone not sort of well-versed? Not as in... heavily into it. It's exciting stuff. And it, it's it's interesting. I think some the it well. Should say at least that there are there'll be, there are plenty of think of highlights to to watch for you to catch up, and it is happening now, so it's, that's great. But yeah, it's it's great to see the sport. I I enjoyed. It wasn't from from today, but I enjoyed the there was uh, some pre start maneuvers that went on in I can't remember which race it was. I think it was a few days ago, which was exciting and impressive to watch the even before the start, people trying to get a, a competitive advantage. Yeah, so so that's one of the things you'll notice while watching it is a lot of the race is won before the <laughs> the start gun even goes off because the boats are trying to get the best position on the start line, get the best wind. So a lot of the courses that are set will have different amounts of wind on either side of the course. So 
they'll try and position themselves in a, in a place to get the, the best wind to sail the boat fastest. So for, for those who don't know, how you say, we say about these pre-start maneuvers, how does the race get started? Ten minutes before, um, they'll start the countdown and they'll have a three-minute gun, a two-minute gun, one-minute gun, and then they'll, the teams will try and time it perfectly so they cross the start line right when the gun goes off at zero to be up sailing at full speed because one of the methods you could do is just sit completely depower your sail sit on the start line uh, and wait for the gun to go and then pull everything in and go off but you're losing so much time having to get back up on the foils and accelerating but these boats as soon as they're up on the foils they're going sort of 50 k's an hour so so and (laughs) so they're closing to the line very quickly so they have to be really precise with the the angle that they're coming in into the line at and how quick that they're getting to it so that they don't um go over the line too soon and have to restart is the course sort of an out and back and then you finish in the same place or is it a more complex course than that yeah so there are a number of different courses but essentially they're all out and back courses there's a start gate and then sort of i think it's three or four kilometers further down there's a turn gate where there are two marks and you can go around either one of them so the the it's essentially an out and back you go out to the turn turn gate you turn around and then they generally do three laps of from the from the start to the turn gate and back they they do three times around that and then they finish over the the start line to the uninitiated, you might assume that that's quite a boring race in that you, if it, most people looking at that would think, oh, well, I'm going to set my sails at the start, uh, get my cup of tea, sit on my, uh, <laughs> sit on my uh, sunbed for, until we arrive close to the uh, turn gate, get up, do something, turn it around, set it off to go back to the start, sit on my, uh, my sun lounger again with my tea. But it, that's, that's not what we see. No, no, it's not at all. So there are a number of tactics that teams can employ to either make themselves faster or um, disadvantage the other team. So as I said before, the teams will be looking for the highest wind or the or the wind that's best suited for the setup they have on the boat at at, at that time. That, that there is a possibility if they take it into too much wind, they'll, they'll actually go slower for the current setup they're running. But generally the outwards leg to the gate of course so that's the upwind leg so they'll have to be tacking through the wind and every time they tack through the wind they'll either be next to each other where they'll play a game of giving the boat behind them turbulent air which will force them force the boat behind to tack to find some cleaner air to make sure that they're sailing properly because these boats are very heavily customized to to be sailing in almost perfect airflow that's coming from the front of the boat but as soon as you're getting air that's been deflected through all of the sails and rigging of the other boats it's faster to actually tack and go go and find a, a different bit of water to sail in so that way you can defend your your region of more breeze if, if you've decided that one side of the course has more pressure to sail in than the other and then once you're then separated, each time you're coming to the middle of the course, you'll be 
coming in at essentially right angles. And so it's essentially a game of chicken with who, who's going to pass in front of the other or not. And as I said before, they'll be closing at, at well over 100 kilometers an hour closing speed for, to each other. And this sort of closing speed and that there's just huge forces that are involved in it really highlights the, the safety equipment and everything that they have to have in place to be able to do do all of this in, in a safe environment. So all of the boats, when they're out racing, have a very fast high-speed powerboat following them constantly for if anyone falls off, because um, they, they have to walk across the back of the boat every time they tack. And if you hit the water going 50, <laughs> 50 knots, it hurts and knocks you out. So, so they have their safety boats following them. And then also in case they capsize, so that's if the boat pitches its nose into the water, you get a massive deceleration. It's sort of like slamming the handbrake on or probably more like hitting the safety barriers in F1. They all have um, personal rebreather systems. Um, so they have a little supply of oxygen that they can use to escape from the wreckage of the boat or if they're pinned underwater, they've got sort of 30, 40 seconds where they don't have to worry about getting to the surface. They'll they'll have this oxygen and, and they then can be rescued safely. Previous to, to the America's Cup starting, all of the teams went through rigorous safety training schedules of how, how to help one of their colleagues who's passed out or something in the water. Uh, and safety is a is a key factor in everything that they're doing after the the previous america's cup where, where they have had people they have lost people due to these really dangerous conditions yeah so if we're yeah if we're looking watching the race as a as a newcomer we we're looking at the paths of them going up wind we're seeing probably seeing like a braiding pattern a, a kind of a diamond pattern as they do lots of crossing over and so is it fair to say that at those crossover points is where you can kind of judge who's who's ahead and who's behind? Yeah, so that's sort of the main way of telling who's ahead and who's behind at these crossing points and also who goes around the marks the fur first. But the visualizations that they have on the streams are really good. Um, they have sort of parallel lines drawn all up across the course so that you can see where they are relative to each other. And, and so you can see how far down the track they are, even if they're sort of 500 meters apart on either side of the course, you can see which one is ahead. And they've also built, they have loads of onboard cameras and they, they'll they switch to views of them going through the tacks. They, they have a huge sort of tower of cameras and a, an a array of GPS monitors out the back that, that, allow them to, to broadcast live from all of the boats it's actually one of the first regions in, in new zealand that has full 5g coverage to be able to do all of this high high data streaming for, from the boats when when they're racing you mentioned a lot that there's a big disadvantage between being the boat behind and therefore in the turbulent air compared to being the boat in front which has the clean air does this generally mean that once you're ahead, you're able to stay ahead for most of the race? Or does the sort of position between who's ahead in the two boats change a lot throughout a race? The racing that we've seen so far, at least from yesterday's race, the person who was first over the start line went on to win. And 
with, with a lot of sailing it is a lot of the time the rich get richer so so if you have the clean air you're able to dictate the place you want to go and you're you're able to sort of guarantee that you can sail the race how you want to sail it but that's not to say that the other team is at a complete loss it only takes one tiny mistake from the boat that's in front maybe they don't quite get the boat up to speed after attack or even the the biggest thing that can slow these boats down is if they come off their foils so what these teams aim for is a 100% foil race so that's they're up with the hulls out of the water the whole race through through the tacks through the jibes but as soon as they touch their the underside of their boat into the water the drag is huge and they can drop sort of hundreds of meters in a few seconds so which is one of the things that is really exciting so so they have to be almost perfect to maintain the lead so so i wouldn't say it's a it's a done deal as soon as someone's in front yeah and that's what makes it so good to watch i guess yeah so so and you actually answered what my next question was going to be there was that it is the case that for the majority of the time they're able to do these tacks and it turns at the end of the course while still maintaining the boat above the water and on the foils they don't have to drop the boat down to do those turns this is one of the things that the teams have focused on from sort of as soon as the design rule was implemented they've looked to see how they can have the boat up out of the water all of the time so the way they do this is when they're coming in for attack they'll they'll be sailing along with just one foil in the water and the other one lifted out um, to provide a writing moment and then as they come into the wind and through the tack they'll actually go through the tack with both foils in the water to provide a more stable base and then once they've kept their speed up they'll get onto the other tack lift lift the other foil out of the water and then power up and move on and i think we've talked a lot about technology and engineering and you've mentioned that they these boats have been designed to bring back the skill into some more of the skill into this but i would i would want to ask the question to you do you think they've succeeded do you think it is something it is now much more about skill or do you think the fastest boat design in any of the in the hands of any of the teams that are down in in new zealand currently would win i i think it is very tricky with these expensive boats to see whether it's the whether it's testing the sailing ability of the sailors but the the america's cup has almost always been a design competition as well but but it is a bit of a shame that that they're once they've set their whole shape once they've decided those sort of large-scale things that they can't change it but i mean the the technological advancement that these people can make over a short period of time is amazing so sort of they had christmas races where team enios lost every single one by a mile they they were obviously well off the pace and in the in the sort of two weeks since then they've managed to eke out an extra 10 to 15% performance from their boat. They've put a new mast on it. They've got new rigging. They've put a new boom in to, to control how the shape, shape of the sail is controlled. And today they've won two races, have they not? Yeah, and, and now they've come back and won the first two races. 
is it possible for just changing the mast and the boom to make such difference? Do you think that's what's attributed the 10 to 15% increase in performance? That seems like a huge amount for something that perhaps to a uh, not discerning viewer seems quite a trivial or, or non-significant change. One of the things that has been commented on by a lot of the more more, more versed members of the sailing community uh, is that Ineos were really set up for a higher wind speed than was than they had been sailing in, and so they had uh, smaller foils and they, they were geared to sail in a higher wind speed. So when when they were at lower speeds, that they had they had a much bigger disadvantage than the other teams. And I think they've gone away and re- rethought how they're going to be operating across the whole wind speed range. And also some of the design concepts they had in their previous sail setup, they had an articulating boom to be able to get more shape in the sail downwind. But now they've moved to an almost completely rigid boom, which has no articulation in. And and they're doing a lot better with speed upwind. So So... That they've taken a few of the design inspirations from how they've seen other boats performing much better than them and implemented them, which is what we see in F1. Yeah, there are a lot of analogies to make. But I think we've seen before technology and, and changes and fast, rapid changes in technology having such an impact on the America's Cup. I mean, to come back to the example of... of San Francisco, there were the turnaround in fortunes there. Uh, if you were to believe the British media, it was because Sabine and Ainsley got on the Oracle boat. But if you really listened to the engineering, it sounded like they'd made such dramatic changes to that boat overnight. They went from losing every race to winning every race and, and being one of the, the sort of most amazing sporting comebacks. Yeah. Uh, and I think this sort of finding the the technological advantage over the other team has generally been what's won it for <laughs> for for teams in the in the past few editions i mean in in the last in the last edition team new zealand were were very coy about their sail setup and what their boat design was going to be like and they turned up at the, the at the race event with instead of all of their grinders being powered by the arms like we've talked about with these stupidly burly men churning out hundreds of watts they actually had just put bikes on their on their boat uh, and were using <laughs> pedal power to to gain that power advantage over the other teams well it's been a really interesting conversation discussing a sport that i think one of us knows a lot about and two of us are, are more on the edge of and possibly something that that gives people an opportunity to watch elite sport again which is something that is still pretty limited with with what we can watch at the moment. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, and as a, as a last as a last thinking point, at some point maybe there'll be a uh, America's Cup boat or the fastest America's Cup boat will be run will be powered by AI and it'll be who can design the best AI as well as who can design the best boat. Oh, but maybe that. Then would we're make getting onto autopilot set, and that's a whole another ball game. But yeah, exactly. the. Uh, the Prada Cup series is running until February. Um, there's racing almost every day or every other day. So there's there's lots to go and watch and get involved and find a new elite sport to go and be be a fanboy of. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll certainly be 
tuning in, I think, to the highlights rather than the live coverage at four o'clock in the morning. No, I, I'm definitely be tuning in and keeping in watchful eye on how it all goes down in New Zealand. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hopefully, you've enjoyed this episode. We'd love to get in touch with you guys. So, if you do want to have a que- give us a question, if you want to chat to us, if you want to keep an eye on when the episodes are coming, get some some quick behind the scenes. And the best way of doing that is on our Instagram at uh, vftb underscore pod. Also, excitingly, we'll be having a new logo, which will get shown on there very soon. So look at that for that. Thank you very much. Have a good night.